0: Welcome to Gateway. We are excited that you are here with us as we celebrate the third Sunday in Advent. I'm Bill. This is Jay. We're going to read a couple of passages of Scripture, and they are phenomenal passages for what they say, for what they stand for, but also it illuminates for us what Jesus, when he gave his announcement, basically saying, I am the Messiah. He quotes from Isaiah and that's one of the passages that we're gonna read and uh, Jay's gonna read from Matthew. But he quotes from Isaiah and I want you to be looking out for two things. One, in Luke 4 when he quotes it and we get that account, he leaves out a key phrase, the day of vengeance. And it's interesting because he's saying, I'm coming for all the things stated here, but there's a pause, I'm doing something amazing And this amazing thing means I'm actually pausing the day of retribution, the day of uh, setting everything right so that people can be made right with God. The second thing is that you're going to notice in here, he talks about setting prisoners free. In the ancient Near East, prisoners were set free, often when a new king would come onto the scene. And it was a sign of justice. It was also a sign that as the new king would come in, he would free those prisoners who had been thrown in prison for their debt that they could not pay. And this is what we're going to glimpse in Isaiah 61. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is the part conspicuously missing in Luke. And the day of vengeance of our God. But then we drop back in with to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Jay.
1: All right, this is Matthew 2, 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of the King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? He saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod asked, this was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, They saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. They, then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to her, they returned for their country by another road.
0: Let's pray. Dear Lord, we celebrate when you broke into all history to do something we never could have imagined to set us free. You came as a baby and we celebrate the way you came in to share in every way and all the sufferings that we suffer, and yet without sin, to lead a way that only you could have led for us where we could be free in you. Lord, I pray that you would be with us today, that you would teach us what you want us to learn, and that our hearts would be open.
2: In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Gateway, this is Kevin Ball. I want to introduce you to Kevin. Kevin has a <laughs> Kevin has a profoundly fascinating story. Uh, I asked Kevin if he would come sometime and share his story with Gateway. He's going to give an abbreviated version today. It's just going to hit on the high parts. And uh, we'll get Kevin another time to dive into more of the detail, because you're going to want to hear Kevin's story. Profound, it's, Kevin, where'd you grow up? I can't remember. Uh, Los Angeles, California. Okay. And went to college where? Uh, U.S. Naval Academy. (laughs) Oh, that's right, yeah. And then served in the Navy, became a SEAL, have gotten an advanced degree, and have done various things in your life, started a company, and... Yeah.
3: Much excitement.
2: (laughs) But you have a rich and profound connection with Christ, Kevin, and and you were going to tell us a little bit about how that happened. So.
3: So I'm going to read this. Normally I do it live, and it's much more exciting live, but I realized that if I wanted to get it in the time here that it would be better for me to read it, and so my prayer in this is that if anybody's moved by it, if you wanna come talk to me or other people, I just hope that if there's something in here for you, I pray that Jesus will open it up for you and that you'll come and talk to me or other people about it. Okay. So first, I have a confession to make. The man who brought me to Christ was a used car salesman. <laughs> now, why am I telling you this? Uh, he was a minister too, he was a used car salesman first. But uh, when, when Pastor Ed asked me if I would be willing to tell you my story, My immediate reaction was, holy cow, I have no idea what to say and I am one hot mess. So does he really want to talk to me? I mean, holy cow, because I'm a total basket case. And what the heck do I have of value to anyone here at Gateway? And so I prayed about it and prayed about it and prayed about it and prayed about it. And it took a long time for me to actually write this, which is why it's taken so long to actually for me to get here. But let me tell you the story. So my sister invited me to church And she was going to sing in a group called Braid Chords. My sister is a bit of a Pentecostal, which is interesting. (laughs) And I went to her church, and her pastor wasn't there for the day. And this gentleman named Ken Porre walks out on stage, and God rest his soul. And he said, do you know my Jesus? Now, as a person who was a Naval Academy graduate, and a Georgetown graduate, and a Navy SEAL, and working on a Ph.D. at Georgetown... I thought, this is going to be exciting and humorous. (laughs) So I crossed my arms and sat back to listen to the gentleman speak. And I'll tell you, at the time, I was a bit skeptical. I came from the agnostic side of things, where I thought, you can't really know God, and nobody else can know God either. I wasn't a mean agnostic. I was kind of a nice agnostic. Kind of one of those that's hedging all my bets. And I thought, you know, I'm going to believe in this guy, Jesus in part because, you know, what's the hurt? And there's really no pain in me doing it because, hey, he'll forgive me anyway, right? He's that kind of a guy. But as I sat listening to this gentleman talk, it really changed. And he, he talked about three problems that people have when they're trying to understand Jesus. And, and the three problems that they have are, did Jesus Christ really live? Was he really born of a virgin? and was he really resurrected? And those three questions, I would bet somebody in here has those questions right now. And I will tell you (laughs) that this gentleman who was the used car salesman resolved them for me that day. And I can resolve them for you. I've taken and expanded one of them, but he told me a little bit about the story of C.S. Lewis. How many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis? So, I see some of you. So, C.S. Lewis was an atheist, and the story of his coming to Christ is really interesting. So, he was a scholar, worked at, uh, I don't know whether it was Oxford or Cambridge, but a very high level scholar, and uh, had been an atheist, and he came to realize that atheism was a very tenuous position to hold. And the way that he came about it was that he asked himself a question, and he said, How would Hamlet? You know, and you know Hamlet from the book, right? Uh, So, how would Hamlet ever get to know Shakespeare, the author of the play Hamlet? And as he thought about it, he really came to an interesting paradox, right? Because he realized that Hamlet could never get to know Shakespeare unless Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. Now, I won't have to explain what that means for you in the Jesus story. But when I listened to that, I realized that he was talking at that very moment about God writing himself into our lives. And it was groundbreaking. No, unfortunately, I have not been reading from my paper. Yes, I've noticed that. But... (laughs) So I'm completely lost at this point. (laughs) (laughs) But I will tell you that that feeling for me was profound. And I've actually taken that thought and I've expanded on it in my own life. But I've come to realize that not only was Jesus a real person, not only was he crucified... But I also believe that he was born of a virgin. And, and I'll tell you, having worked at the Biodesign Institute, at Arizona State University, virgin birth is absolutely possible biologically. It's really just a question of what are the things that sparked it. And, and Ken Poray said a really interesting thing. He said, what would make you think that the inventor of biology wouldn't be able to hack it? And at the time, when we were all about hacking biology, I realized, wow, he's absolutely right. So then it comes down to the resurrection, which is really the key. And the question is, was Jesus resurrected? And I would tell you in my own life, just since I'm free spikling it here, you know, yes, there were lots of witnesses who never recanted. And that was probably the first thing that really got me interested. But I'll tell you else, the other thing is that when you come to know Jesus and you ask Jesus into your life and he sparks something in you, that yearning that's inside is really the evidence because that yearning that's inside that holy spirit yearning that's inside you that's the thing that resurrected Jesus. And if you can feel that I get goosebumps right now, but that's what it's all about.
2: Thank you very much. One of the reasons I'm sorry that you lost your place, Kevin, I couldn't help but notice as your paper slid like that, the paragraph right after where you're talking about Hamlet, you say, I was an idiot and I was looking forward to you sharing <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't get that in there. <laughs> I was looking forward to you sharing that part of your story with us. And here's the thing. We all are. I will say occasionally here on Sunday morning, and I've upset one or two of you when I do this, but I will say, say occasionally here on Sunday morning, I'll say, welcome to Gateway. We are a group of hypocrites. We're people who say one thing and do another. Fortunately for us, we've had this experience with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. And it changes everything. It reorders all of that. So if you're visiting today, welcome. We are a bunch of idiots. And Kevin is one of us. Let's close in prayer. Can we do that? I'll pray. Father, I want to thank you for writing yourself into Kevin's story and mine. I want to thank you for your impact in his life, and for the privilege that others of us near him have felt. From that impact, from your impact in his life, we have felt that. And that's the privilege, Lord, of connecting with one another in community. I pray especially today, Father, for anyone here today who is unconvinced, anyone here today who has never connected with you or those who have that are in a particular struggle with doubt, I pray for your encouragement, your grace, and your clarity today. And Lord, I also pray that you would break open your story to us today. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thanks, Kevin. Okay, well, once again, good morning. Did you notice in the section that Jay read for us this morning from Matthew chapter 2. It's a pretty familiar story about the wise men and the wise men coming to visit Jesus. Did you notice the things that are not part of the account that Jay read for us from the Bible this morning? Matthew doesn't give the number of wise men. The whole idea of three wise men comes from the mention of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Matthew doesn't mention a number. He never calls them kings. Some of you grew up Referring to this as the three kings. Matthew never calls them kings. He never gives them names. Some of you in your tradition know the names of the wise men. Matthew never gives those names. There's lots of legendary information that has grown up around the birth of Jesus. Mythology, if you will. I mean, this is a crazy story, this whole thing. So how in the world are we supposed to believe it? And if we do believe it, what does it even mean? So I'm going to continue from what we talked about last week. Once again, I'm going to threaten to be boring, but today, in my defense, I'm going to explain why we've done a little of what we did last week and what we're doing this morning. I'm going to talk a little bit again about how it is that we believe this and what actually happened and a little bit about what that means And toward the end, we'll touch on why we've done all of this, and that's going to be the if you miss everything else, don't miss this part, but we'll get there in a second. Last week, we listed five reasons to believe this story. We said Old Testament prophecy suggested it. We said the first witnesses believed it themselves. We said the students of the first followers faithfully carried it into the second century. We said it's consistent with the rest of Jesus' life, and we said secular details are confirming of the story. Now, really, in our time together, we're only going to have time to cover one more of these. So we're going to cover the second one of these today. And I so wish I had time to cover the the last three, but we'll do that another year. Today, we're going to talk about the first witnesses. And we're just going to touch lightly on that. I'm going to get a little bit detailed and geeky, so stay with me. All right, the first witnesses believed it. That's what we're saying. Obviously, Matthew includes an account of the birth of Jesus, and Matthew was one of the first twelve. Jay read it for us this morning. He was one of the apostles, and he was an eyewitness of Jesus' escapades. By the way, many of you know Luke, what's given as the third biographer of Jesus in in the New Testament. Luke also includes an account of Jesus' birth. Luke was a disciple of Paul, he was an educated man, and he was a pretty apt historian. But for simplicity's sake, we're only going to deal with Matthew today and have been for the last two weeks. So it's a big deal that we have these two accounts of this story. How do we explain that we have these two very early accounts of the birth of Jesus? Where did they come from, if not from the legitimate recollection of Jesus' earliest followers? All right, let me offer some alternative explanations that you've thought or you've heard, or you've read, or you've seen some Discovery Channel special on the birth of Jesus, or you will during the season, and they'll give you one of these alternatives. Alternative number one, Mary could have been Looney Tunes. She could have been a bit crazy, or she could have made it up to aggrandize, to make larger her son's life story. I want to say we're not going to deal with this very much because this is unlikely and honestly I've never read a scholarly work that even suggested this. I've never really read this idea anywhere. First of all there's no evidence for it. We don't have much about Mary but what we have doesn't allow for the picture that she was crazy. Secondly to believe this and follow this if you can to believe this What you'd essentially be doing is you would be replacing what you believe to be one made up story that Jesus is born of a virgin. You'd be replacing that made up story with another made up story that Mary's crazy. So there's no evidence for this. This is not really a good alternative for your thinking if you want to doubt. A second alternative maybe Matthew and Luke are Looney Tunes. Maybe they both got this thing completely messed up in their heads. Maybe they were delusional. Honestly, No one really suggests this either. This doesn't fit with their writing. I mean, we have a lot from Matthew, and we have a lot from Luke. If there were legitimate mental health problems, there would be indications in their writing. Plus, again, this would amount to replacing one what you believe to be false story with another one. So neither of these are legitimate explanations for how we ended up with the text that we have. But there are at least two legitimate ways of casting doubt on Matthew's belief in the events surrounding Jesus' birth and alternative explanations for how we got these texts. So there are a couple legitimate ways for dismissing this. Number one, it has been suggested that Matthew and, and Luke along the same lines, but let's stick with Matthew. It's been suggested that Matthew didn't actually write this biography. Or more often, it's suggested that Matthew didn't write large parts of the biography, including the birth narrative section. So here's how that argument goes. Many, maybe most scholars believe that Matthew wrote at least parts of the book of Matthew, perhaps much of it, but some believe he didn't write chapters 1 and 2, or chapter 1 beginning at verse 18. Now, inside your program this morning, I've given you a printout of Matthew 1 and 2 and the first part of chapter 3. And it's for this next point right here. I want you to see what happens in some scholarly circles around this idea. Those chapters, the back half of chapter 1 and chapter 2, they believe were added at a much later date, probably by some Christian who had heard these legends somewhere and thought they needed to be included. Various arguments have been offered to support this theory. Let me give you one example. Again, not too much detail, but let me give you one example of a scholarly argument for why the back half of chapter one and chapter two, the whole birth narrative, was not really written by Matthew. One of the main arguments can be found at the beginning of chapter three. So, chapter three begins like this In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea. This is how chapter three begins. The argument has been made by certain scholars that the phrase, in those days, does not naturally follow from what happens in chapter 2. Chapter 2 ends with an account of Mary and Joseph and the baby returning to the town of Nazareth. I told you we were going to threaten to be boring, but stay with me. Then chapter 3 begins many years later with John ministering in Judea. This is too much of a stretch, or so the argument goes. Most of the proponents of this idea think chapter 3, verse 1 would be a better fit at the end of the genealogy. So if you find chapter 1, verse 17, it reads like this. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Then, according to these scholars, Matthew would have next written, in those days John the Baptist came. In other words, I'm talking about the days of Jesus. And in those days, the days of Jesus, John the Baptist came. Again, this is an example of the kind of textual argument that's made to dispute the validity of Matthew's account and of the virgin birth. The argument goes like this, so follow me. Matthew didn't believe in the virgin birth and we know this because Matthew didn't write this section of the biography as we have it today. It was a myth added much later by some scribe to increase Jesus' reputation and to help explain the Trinity. But the counter argument The argument in favor of Matthew's authorship of this section is really simple and straightforward. Jesus spent his childhood and his early adulthood in the village of Nazareth. Then, during the more formal part of his ministry, he traveled throughout the region of Galilee. The phrase, in those days, in chapter 3, verse 1, would indicate that Matthew meant during the time Jesus was still in Nazareth. The time which is referenced at the end of chapter 2. This is at least as likely as natural a connection as going back to the end of the genealogy. Plus, if you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that chronology of events is never airtight. Look, the argument that Matthew obviously didn't write chapters 1 and 2, and and we can see that because of the wording of chapter 3, that argument has come up off and on over many decades, but it's never really gained much ground because it's not a very strong argument. I know this sounds like a crazy thing to bring up the Sunday before Christmas. And it sounds way too detailed, but this is the kind of thing that New Testament scholarship spills an enormous amount of ink debating. There are other issues related to the birth narrative in Matthew that scholars question, but none of them are any stronger really in their case than the the Matthew 3-1 argument. Let me add something. Aside from what I've just said, there are two profoundly strong reasons for believing that Matthew did write the first two chapters of the book himself and that they were not added in later. Again, boring warning, but hold on, this is important. Two arguments for the idea that Matthew certainly wrote all of this document. Argument number one, unanimity of documentary evidence. Argument two, the striking similarity of language. So let me explain. You can't go anywhere to a library anywhere in the world and take out Matthew's document that Matthew wrote down and study Matthew's autograph and see Matthew's handwriting. What we have are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. And some of those documents are in Latin and they're from the 4th, 5th, or 6th century, and they're found buried in some monastery somewhere. Some of those documents are in Greek, and they've been dug up in various places around the world. There are little shards of a document. There's a verse here or a chapter there or sometimes half of the book or, or in some cases you'll find most of the manuscript. And there are thousands of these that have been found all over the ancient Near East. But what we don't have anywhere is a part of Matthew that excludes the rest of it. We don't anywhere have the genealogy of Matthew skipping the back half of uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, and then Matthew 3. We don't have that document anywhere. Everywhere that a document of the actual book of Matthew has been found, even if it's a partial, it, it always includes what we have of Matthew today. It's exactly like our text. There is no documentary evidence Actual documentary evidence for this theory or any other theory that excludes chapter one and chapter two from the rest of Matthew. Secondly, the striking similarity of language. So I know that some of you here are engineers and you have a certain way of writing, you have a style, you have a certain kind of sentence structure. You're probably pretty pointed and abrupt. Others of you are more poetic. You, you majored in English in college, and when you finished, you realized that was pointless. But you did anyway. And you have a certain way of writing, and you have a vocabulary that you use. You, you never use the word ubiquitous. You, you memorized it for SAT when you were a junior in high school, but you've never used it since. Your engineer friend uses ubiquitous four times in every six pages. You have a style, you have a vocabulary. Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2 reads exactly like, with the same kind of style, the same way he introduces Old Testament texts, the same sentence structure, the same flow. It reads exactly like Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 20. Striking similarity of language. There's a really, really high likelihood that Matthew wrote Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, all the way to the end. There's a second legitimate explanation for where these stories come from, an explanation that would account for, that would discount that the first followers actually believed this story. The second explanation would be to simply suggest that there's a great deal of mythology that has surrounded Jesus. And, And all of the attendant circumstances around Jesus's life are filled with mythology. The mythology would include his birth stories. Honestly, this sort of general blanket explanation is the main reason we usually hear, and this is what we usually think when we run into serious doubts ourselves, right? What if all this is just a myth? I was looking some of this up last week, ran into this article on the internet that was making this argument, trying to be somewhat elaborately, but Let me read you their introduction. I've got it on the screen for you. I want you to see this. This is the kind of thing you'll stumble into every now and then if you pick up a National Geographic about archaeological work around the birth of Jesus or any number of places. Listen to this introduction of this article. Myths are stories that have evolved to such an extent that the truth they contain has become so charismatic and obvious that religions are formed around them. All of the great religions have mythological stories as their justification and source of their truth. There's no better example than Moses or Jesus. Again, he's made an opening point, but he says, so he says again here. Again, no historical record, but most people believe or are willing to concede that a real historical Moses and Jesus did, in fact, exist. Okay, I have to pause there. I didn't mean to do this, but no historical record. I'm going to read that again. Again, no historical record, but most people believe or are willing to concede that a real historical Moses and Jesus did, in fact, exist. Look, there is no historian, there is no legitimate historian who's worth their salt anywhere in the world that doesn't believe there was a real historical Moses or Jesus. The documents that we have around Jesus, I didn't mean to make this point, but the actual documents, even though he says there are no historical records, the actual documents that we have and the manuscripts on which these documents are based are a hundred times more reliable and there's a lot more source than we have about Julius Caesar. Nobody doubts that there was an actual Jesus, but somehow this person wants us to believe that this is a concession. We'll go ahead and concede that there was an actual Jesus. That's ridiculous. There was a Jesus. After 600 years in the oral tradition, Moses was turning staffs into serpents and performing any number of miracles for the edification of Pharaoh, including the parting of the Red Sea. We won't deal with Moses this morning, but just listen to this last one. And after only 40 to 80 years, why does he say, I'll tell you that in a second, after only 40 to 80 years in the oral tradition, Jesus had become the result of a virgin birth and had risen from the dead. You get the feel of what he's doing. Here's the thing. People who study myths, academically study myths, suggests that it takes somewhere between 80 to 100 years for myths to solidify and then be believed. To buy the myth argument, we have to believe that in about 40 years, really elaborate mythology had arisen around Jesus' life and that that mythology was believed by people who had actually known him. That's possible. But it's extremely unlikely in my opinion that's why you find intricate arguments against Matthew being the actual author of these stories. If Matthew didn't write these stories, but they were added 100 or 150 years later, there's a really strong possibility that there was no real truth in them. But if Matthew did write these stories, where do you imagine they came from? Look, those of you who know me know my wife, Diane. and Diane is literally the best person I know. She's awesome, amazing she's wonderful she's not even in here so I'm not getting points for any of this and there are elaborate stories that have been told about Diane from her childhood there's a favorite family story of her mother told me about nine times and every time I had to act like I was hearing it for the first time you know she's a little bantam rooster I remember the time she was backed into a corner oh wow really tell me again I I liked hearing Diane's stories. I loved hearing stories about her youth, but if her mother had come to me and suggested, by the way, Daryl and I had never done the thing. I was a virgin when Diane was born. I wouldn't have believed it. Not for a minute. I would not have believed it. As great as I think Diane is, I would not have believed that Diane was born of a virgin. The development of mythology could be the reason we have these stories. Or someone other than Matthew could be the source of this account. We have no evidence for that, but it could be. But another explanation for these accounts would be that they actually happened. And that Matthew has recorded for us the events as they actually unfolded. And that Matthew himself was convinced this is what happened. All right, why does this matter? Why spend all this time rummaging around these boring details this morning? If you miss everything else, don't miss this. Pause for dramatic effect. Because the Christian faith makes a truth claim. It's based on truth. We don't believe what we believe because it makes us feel good. We don't believe what we believe because it's inspiring and to believe it makes us better people. Those things may be true, but that's not why we believe what we believe. We believe what we believe because it's true. It's based on historical facts. Those things may not have happened. The facts may be false. We hear a lot about false facts these days. But we believe facts, historical events. Christian faith is unlike any other faith in this regard. Christianity is not essentially a religion. It is a religion. Of course, there are religious practices surrounding Christianity, but it's not essentially a religion. Christianity is not essentially a way of life. Of course, it's a way of life. There's teaching about how we should live, but, but that's not essentially why we gather on Sunday mornings. Christianity, at its essence, is a bone-shattering, life-altering, universe-changing belief in a set of historical events, things that actually happened, things that changed everything. So if this is all true, then Jesus was born of a virgin. Mary, his mother, had never had sexual relations with a man. Jesus was... In some way, physically, biologically, literally, the Son of God. So what does that mean? I am so sorry. You've been waiting for the big payoff, and it is above my pay grade to fully and adequately answer that question. I'm going to offer a couple of things. First of all, I want to, because I think it's helpful, I'm going to offer a chronological view of what the first followers came to believe. And then I'm going to offer an illustration that has helped me enormously over the years to gather in this idea. Before I do that, I want to read from an awesome email I got this week. Someone was responding to the message last week and sent me an email talking about their their faith and their questions. Listen to this. I'm going to quote. This is where all the doubt comes into play, they said. I believe that God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son, follow this, But I really do struggle with the aspect that Jesus is God in human form. This has always bothered me. But when you grow up Catholic, they tell you, quote, this is what they call blind faith, child, end quote. Sorry, I'm not blind, and I have tremendous faith. It's not just the Catholics who do that, by the way. Then the email lists a few biblical reasons why it's so hard to believe this God in human skin idea that I talked about last week. Let me give you just two of the ones that were mentioned in the email. Number one, quoting. Baby in the manger, underlined. How can we believe that God, the Alpha and Omega, took 33 years away from everything and decided to be a child, even a helpless child? I believe God had a son, Jesus, and he chose to come to earth and to save us, but it isn't God himself. Second one. In the garden and on the cross, underlined. When Jesus was dying, who did he cry out to asking for forgiveness? Crying that he was forsaken and then commending his spirit into his hands. Whose hands were they if they weren't already nailed to the cross? The email concludes with this. These are just a few of the Bible areas that really make me struggle with the concept of God in the flesh. All right, this is a great note. And by the way, I wouldn't really call this doubt. I suspect many of us think this way, and for some of us, this is what we think on our good days. On our bad days, we doubt the whole thing altogether. This is, by the way, this is a great note because this is a great summary of how the early church struggled with understanding Jesus, as did the first followers. They went through this exact same line of thinking. The questions in this email are the exact questions that led, by the way, to the formulation of the Apostles' Creed and then later to the Nicene Creed. It may help us to look at how this whole belief evolved, so let's do that. As you read the New Testament biographies, you get a clear sense that there was an evolution in the thinking of the first followers. Almost immediately, they saw Jesus as a great rabbi, a prophet, and a great teacher. One of the first followers, in fact, called him a prophet when he first met him. And crowds were known to rumor and, and say that they heard teaching before, but never like this. Then, later, they began to witness the miracles. And the crowds increased, and the first followers began to wonder, is this the long-awaited Messiah? Messiah? Imagine during this period, they began to struggle with the meaning of the strange stories that Mary told them about his birth and and the prophetic words that were spoken about him as a child. They started to think of him as perhaps the unique son of the living God. They began to link his life and ministry with prophetic Old Testament announcements of the Messiah, and even at times, Old Testament references to God himself got linked to Jesus' activity. And then there were a couple of incidences in the middle of Jesus' life. And those of you who have been part of Gateway for a long time, you've heard me talk about this before. But my favorite story in the Bible. It's my favorite story because it's so profound. And I also think it's so seminal in our understanding. of, so important in our understanding of Jesus and in the first followers' understanding of him. So there's a time when they're taking a break and Jesus wants to go to the other side of the lake. So they get on the Sea of Galilee. And half of the first followers were fishermen. So they knew the Sea of Galilee well. They also knew... The storms that still happen on the Sea of Galilee because it's in something of a valley, and storms would sweep into the Sea of Galilee. And often in the ancient Near East, vessels would be overturned, and the lives of fishermen would be lost on the Sea of Galilee when one of these horrible storms came in, and you couldn't predict these storms. So they're out on the Sea of Galilee at one point. The disciples are in a boat with Jesus. This storm comes sweeping through, and they begin to bail water because they know what's happening, and it says they were very afraid. Jesus is asleep, meanwhile probably exhausted from all the ministry activity. The disciples go, wake him up, and they say, don't you care? There's a storm. We're all going to die. Jesus, what do you do? Help, help, help. Bail some water, you idiot rabbi. And Jesus wakes up and goes to the front of the boat and says, quiet. And the sea goes deathly still. And then Matthew in chapter 8 records a remarkable thing. Matthew uses a stronger word, and he says, they were terrified. And they looked at one another and they said, what kind of man is this? Because we know teachers. We have a category for teacher. We've never seen anybody teach like him, but we have a category. We even have a category for healer. We've never seen anybody heal like him, but we have that category. But what kind of man does this? After this, their perspective changed. Until at the end of his life, utter confusion. Gives way to wonder and awe. And finally, Thomas, the one who initially cannot believe what he's heard. Thomas, when he puts his fingers in the holes in Jesus' hands and sighs, he falls down and he worships him. And he says what no self-respecting Jew would ever say. He says, my Lord and my God. That, I believe, is roughly the chronology I'm not saying at that point they had it all worked out, but at that point their lives had been utterly transformed. They were believers and worshipers. They gave to Jesus what any self-respecting Jew would only give to Yahweh. Pause over that for a second and let me offer you an illustration that's helped me over the years. I used this illustration a few weeks ago, but it bears repeating. C.S. Lewis again. Thank you, Kevin, wherever you are. C.S. Lewis asks us to imagine drawing a straight line on a piece of paper. This is a one-dimensional figure, Lewis reminds us. Then imagine drawing a square. This would be a two-dimensional figure exhibiting width and depth. Lewis reminds us that while the second figure is completely different from the first, it nevertheless uses elements of the first figure. So straight lines are still in use here, even though this is a completely different figure. That is, several straight lines are used to make the square. Then Lewis suggests that we imagine drawing a three-dimensional cube. The cube is actually the combination of six squares drawn together. Lewis summarizes like this. In other words... As you advance to more real and more complicated levels, you do not leave behind you the things you found on the simpler level. You still have them, but combined in new ways, in ways you cannot imagine if you only knew the simpler level. Now, the Christian account of God involves just the same principle. The human level is a simple and rather empty level. On the human level, one person is one being, and any two persons are two separate beings. Just as in two dimensions, say on a flat piece of paper, one square is one figure and any two squares are two separate figures. But on the divine level, you still find personalities, but up there you find them combined in new ways which we who do not live on that level cannot imagine. In God's dimensions, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being. Just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. The first witnesses believed in the virgin birth. In the case of Matthew and Luke, they believed the life story of Jesus should start with that account, not just for chronological reasons, but because this is the beginning of their case. This is the first hint that something incredible, something mind-bending, something universe-altering is about to happen, and from our perspective, has happened. God had a sign, and through that event, Jesus entered the world. They wanted us to know that Jesus was and is fully God and fully man, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages and eternity, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Now, let's end. About 10% of us are thinking, I just can't buy all of that. (laughs) Please know that the rest of us understand. But let me offer a couple of encouragements if you're in that category this morning, if you just cannot buy all of this, then number one, don't just doubt, but also doubt your doubt. Put everything to the test. Put your doubts through the same rigor that you put faith. Sometimes doubt is easy, but when you try to construct a real viable alternative explanation, the truth of the events actually becomes more and more compelling. Secondly, don't stop seeking. I want to tell you it's worth it. Everything is at stake here. If these stories are true, it changes everything, so it's worth the investment. All right, for the others of us, the fully or almost fully convinced. Chances are you and I, even though we are fully or almost fully convinced, chances are you and I cannot make it all fit. It doesn't always all make sense. While we can and should reason our way to recognition of the reality of the events, the interpretation of those events remains somewhat beyond us. The early church did not make up the doctrine of the Trinity out of thin air, as some have suggested. They were merely trying to organize and codify, to bring sense out of the order of the mystery. As A.W. Tozer once said, the doctrine of the Trinity is truth for the heart. Love and faith are at home in the mystery of the Godhead. Let reason kneel outside in reverence because we cannot wrestle this completely to the ground. This isn't blind faith, by the way. This is reasoned, willful acknowledgement that there are things beyond me. And from God's perspective, this may be the only way he could get the participants of the story he authored to really know the author himself. He wrote himself into it. And all God's people said. He wrote himself into it and about once a month at Gateway, we celebrate that in a special way. We, in effect, take him into ourselves. We participate in a meal that remembers him. And we do this even during the season of his birth. Because remember, he didn't stay a baby. He grew up. And we, or people just like us, killed him. And then three days later, he was resurrected from the dead, telling us it was all part of the plan all along. I did this for you. So we celebrate it in this way. And because this is such a special meal and a meal that we participate in together, we need to prepare ourselves for that. Remain standing if you would let's affirm our faith together by saying the apostles creed i believe in god the father almighty creator of heaven and earth jesus christ His only son who was conceived by the power of the holy spirit and born of the virgin mary pause all god's people said wow there aren't many god's people here today All all God's people said stinking wow. All right. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart, and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not acted faithfully, and we have not acted out of our faith. We have worried. We've been angry. We've been more frustrated or discouraged than we had a right to be. We ask that you would forgive us, and for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray that you would have mercy on us, cleanse us. In the strong name of Christ, our Lord, we pray amen you may be seated on the night he was betrayed Jesus took the bread of the meal and he broke it and he said this is my body broken for you at the same meal he took the cup and he said this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins you know what I imagine the first followers' response to that was? Because, remember, these are the the apostles. Holy, awesome, godly people. Amazing people. Incredible people. They've been with Jesus for three years. Seen him do incredible things. I imagine their response was something like, what? That's our response often, isn't it? And still, and still, he offers blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. declaration of faith and a prayer let's stand and just sing that chorus one more time because he lives
4: because And life is worth the living, just because He lives. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that we can live because you live. Um, it's because of your blood and your body broken for us, because you chose to step into humanity and to pay the price for our disobedience. You rescued us. It's because of that that we can live the kind of life you designed us for. So we say thank you. God, we pray that you would use us this week. Pray this in your name. Amen. You are dismissed. Hope you have a great week. Merry Christmas. Go in peace.